0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, August 12th, 2013. I'm Caleb Brown. The increasing militarization of local law enforcement has been helped along by surplus equipment, including tanks from the Pentagon and grants from the Department of Homeland Security. Kara Dansky at the American Civil Liberties Union is looking into how local governments are using this military-grade equipment. We spoke last week.
1: So we've been concerned about various aspects of policing for some time, and we've been noticing trends in the area of increasingly aggressive policing and so we decided to launch a public records request to look specifically at the militarization issue and so we are looking at local law enforcement use of SWAT as well as local law enforcement participation in the defense departments what's referred to as the 1033 program which essentially is a program that allows the defense department to share military equipment, weapons, other kinds of equipment with local law enforcement, as well as local law enforcement participating in the Department of Homeland Security's Homeland Security Grant Program, which authorizes DHS to provide local law enforcement with money to then purchase what we view as potentially excessively militarized equipment.
0: So, uh, one of the chief concerns here is that by granting uh, money rather than providing surplus, which the, the Pentagon has provided, The DHS is essentially helping create a constituency for keeping local police militarized.
1: We're looking really specifically at local police practices, and we're looking at how local police take advantage of federal programs. So we'll be looking into some of that as well.
0: Okay, so what have you found so far?
1: So we issued around 250 or so public records requests with local law enforcement agencies. And they sent in uh, over 5,000 records in response to these requests. So we got quite a lot of information back. And we have spent the summer reviewing the documents. We're not prepared at this time to really discuss our findings. We think that that will come out probably toward the end of this year or early next year. Um, But some early trends that we're seeing really a lack of consistency across the country in terms of first of all the extent to which records are kept on militarization at all. Second of all, to the extent that records are kept, tremendous variation in terms of what kinds of records are kept and what kinds of information local police are keeping. Also a lot of variation in terms of standards that local police use to determine when deployment of a SWAT team would be appropriate. Sometimes very little standard, seemingly, Um, and then to the extent that there are standards, a lot of variation in terms of the factors that they consider. So a lot of variation, not a lot of record keeping, some concerns about transparency, though at the same time, I should say, it is clear to us that a certain amount of military equipment and tactics is appropriate in the domestic law enforcement setting, and so we're working with striking the right balance in terms of recommending, where we think the right balance is and what rules we think should be in place to help guide local law enforcement in their use of SWAT and other kinds of military technology. How
0: long have DHS and the Pentagon been making these provisions to local law enforcement?
1: The Pentagon program has been in place since the mid-1990s and the DHS program has been around since DHS, so around 2003.
0: And that is, the Pentagon's providing surplus, right? What, what does that look like? What are those items?
1: The Pentagon is providing military equipment. Um, it's administered by an agency called the Defense Logistics Agency, which is within DOD. Its motto is from warfighter to crime fighter. And it provides across the board kinds of equipment. So it runs from things like raincoats and computers to tanks and assault rifles.
0: Is there any? argument presented by uh, the Pentagon for why local law enforcement would need tanks?
1: Well, the original statute authorizing the program uh, makes it very clear that it that Congress at the time viewed DOD as having a role in assisting local law enforcement in fighting the drug war and conducting other forms of traditional, what we view as traditional local law enforcement activities.
0: So the drug war, that's essentially uh, the reason for presenting uh tanks to local law enforcement. I'm just having a hard time understanding the circumstances where that that would be useful.
1: Sure. Well, around that time, um, Congress and when I say that time I mean the the 80s and 90s, Congress really was very interested um, in in aggressively fighting the drug war and did show an interest in authorizing and in fact encouraging I think the Defense Department to play a role in that war.
0: You mentioned that it's a wide variation in the kinds of records that local law enforcement is is providing to you. What are some examples of like really good, rich data that you've gotten, and uh, what's at the other end as well?
1: So most of what we are getting from local law enforcement are incident reports of SWAT deployments, invoices of transfers of weapons and other kinds of equipment between local law enforcement and DOD, and invoices of grant money going from DHS to local law enforcement as well as different kinds of training materials, so handouts, um, PowerPoint presentations that have been given. And I should say a lot of the documents that we have also pertain to the National Guard because we asked different states National Guards to give us information about their counter drug program. We wanted to really see the extent to which the National Guard was involved in the domestic war on drugs and local law enforcement.
0: And s- what some local departments have provided very little information?
1: Some have provided very little. Some uh, responded to us by saying that they believed that our requests fell under a security exemption and provided us with no information. Uh, And so we've engaged in some back and forth with those law enforcement agencies to see if we can't come to some sort of agreement. Um, And others provided us with volumes of information. So it's really across the board. And I should say in terms of the the quality you asked about data rich documents this also relates to the variation issue some local law enforcement agencies are keeping very data-intensive records of their SWAT deployments. And so we've received incident reports that contain a lot of information about the suspects, about the underlying charge, about kinds of weapons that are used in connection with the deployment, uh, justification for the deployment, lots of information. And then at the other end of the spectrum, we have incident reports from local law enforcement that contain almost no information.
0: Without going into your findings uh, prematurely, uh, do you find that some departments have good standards when it comes to deciding when to deploy these, you know, essentially home invasion techniques uh, for crime fighting?
1: Well, actually, I'm going to give you an example of a case that falls outside the realm of our investigation, but I, I came across it recently in my research, and it happened just a few days ago in Miami, in which there was an active shooter. I don't know if you heard about this incident, but there was an active shooter who had shot and killed six people and was holding two people hostage in an apartment, and the police had come. And the the police who responded were were essentially unable to intervene for various reasons involving where they were in the apartment building. And the police chief considered and um, considered very carefully whether to deploy his SWAT team because the deployment of a SWAT team can sometimes escalate an incident inappropriately, and so it's appropriate for a law enforcement officer or a police chief to exercise restraint in deploying the SWAT team, did decide in that circumstance to deploy the SWAT team, and the result was that the two hostages were were saved, they were unhurt, no officers were hurt, um, and that would be an example, I would think, of use of a military tactic, a military equipment that was appropriate and helpful and, in fact, necessary to... Um, to protect the public and to aid in the law enforcement activity. So we do think that there are appropriate uses of SWAT teams and other forms of militarization. It's just a matter of finding the right line.
0: So finding that right line uh, imminent danger for individuals is one, but increasingly, of course, SWAT teams are used to serve drug warrants, nonviolent crimes, uh, that sort of thing.
1: They are. And so we'll have to engage in an analysis and and figure out where we think the line falls. But certainly, if you go back far enough, you find that when this—well, before the 1990s, it was very difficult for the police to go into a person's home, right? This is sort of um, traditional—the right to be secure in our homes is is a right secured by the Fourth Amendment. And that right was zealously guarded. And then over the course of the last several decades— That right has been weakened somewhat, and the courts have allowed law enforcement to enter private homes under uh, expanding types of circumstances. However, the main justification for that um, originally was a concern that people who were uh, engaged in in very serious drug dealing had large quantities of drugs that they would dispose of in their homes, and so that was said to authorize local law enforcement to be able to go into the home. But you're right; if it's a circumstance in which We're not necessarily concerned that there would be a large quantity of drugs in the home, but rather the police are interested in serving a a warrant that may be an old warrant. Um, It's hard to see that use of a SWAT team is necessary for those circumstances, especially when the underlying crime is nonviolent in nature.
0: Kara Dansky is with the American Civil Liberties Union. Read more on police, police militarization, and misconduct at our website, cato.org.